Kane and Rinse podcast. This is volume four, issue 184, 999, nine hours, nine persons, nine doors. We're going to have to find a better way to say that. 999, <laughs> that's, that's even an unpleasant combination of syllables right there. And to our German listeners, that might come off as being excessively <laughs> negative. But uh, maybe just nine doors, or we, we can figure it out. Anyways, uh, you can play along with Kane and Rinse, volume four. Our next few shows are... Halo 3, Valiant Hearts, The Great War, Bully, Canis Canum Edit, as it would be known in other regions, uh, Geometry Wars series, and Halo 3 ODST. So rounding out a couple of those Halo 3 titles. You can head over to CanonRinse.com for the full schedule, the blog, and links to our merchandise stall, Facebook, Google+, and YouTube. And we have a sister podcast that we also produce called Sound of Play, in which we highlight some of our very favorite video game music. And that is released every other Wednesday. And that is on a separate feed. You'll need to search for that separately if you're uh, um, subscribing through iTunes or through whatever kind of podcast apps you, you like to use these days. We would also appreciate if you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes because that helps our exposure and can get us in more ear holes. The eternal goal. Joining me, Ryan Hongao Heyman, in this issue, we have James Clover Carter. I, I have a rather dead-eyed look with a wicked, wicked smile at some points. <laughs> and Carl, Ninth Man Moon. I have a rather just dead look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we are talking about Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors, uh, 999, also known as Zero Escape, Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors. Not a lot easier to say, but uh, it was it was called that in the re-release or reprintings as uh, they wanted to tie it into its sequel, Virtue's Last Reward. It's also worth noting that uh, it had previously the literal Japanese uh, title was prefixed with Extreme Escape originally. Um, hmm. That's not a, a retitling, although it probably has been since. Um, and the iOS version people might know as 999 The Novel. So, yes, yeah. indeed. Masquerading under many names. <laughs> Making it very easy for people to find <laughs> in any region, as we'll get into. Uh, this was released on DS in 2009 in Japan, uh, 2010 in North America, and uh, never in Europe. So um, that's going to be fun for anyone who wants to play along with the show. Um, yeah, that's that's unusual for a game to never be released. Uh, maybe it's not, actually. I'm not European myself, so I can't speak to how much you guys are missing <laughs> out on there. But is the DS region free? Have you guys been yeah. able to play this on the DS? Thank you for region-free DS. <laughs> <laughs> so you can play it, even if you don't have... Yeah. Uh, um, if, even if it wasn't regionally released in your region, you can still import a copy for probably an unpleasant amount of money. Yeah, it's not that bad actually. Um, or it wasn't when when I got it. eBay and actually Amazon tend to list import versions. They just list them as US versions, um, often for for resellers. And, yeah. and uh, it's not Amazon selling it itself because it wouldn't be allowed to. But right. uh, sort of independent game stores often list stuff on there. So um, I don't seem to remember it being too bad. Certainly not much more than sort of twenty pounds a few years ago. The price was a little bit high. I think the reprint massively helped it. Uh, it it's one of those games I always had my eye on and I yeah. wanted to grab, but it was always a little bit too much out of my price range. Thankfully, uh, completely mm. unrelated to this, I had a friend who was willing to lend me her copy. She's I've had it for 
a good year and a bit so now, um, and I've, I've finally gotten around to it. Uh, so yeah, uh, thanks to Ra- Rachel Haslam for lending me her copy a year ago. I've used it for this episode. <laughs> this is also released on iOS as 999 The Novel, as we had mentioned previously, in 2014 worldwide. And uh, this version is quite noticeably different than the DS version. It has the same basic story and a lot of the same art and uh, assets and stuff. But they they cut out all the puzzle rooms, which we will talk more about later. But for those of you who are uh, who have an iOS device and say, well, you know, this might be an equivocable equivocable experience, uh, you might be missing out on a little bit. Um, and again, we'll talk about the specifics of that later. But just so you know, it's not the exact same thing. It's uh, kind of a scaled back version. It was developed by Chunsoft, who is well known in the visual novel genre, especially in Japan, and published by Axis. This was written and directed by Kotaro Uchikoshi, who has previously done work on other uh, very famous visual novels, uh, Never 7, Ever 17, Remember 11, 12 Riven series, and was a 3D modeler on Pepsi Man for the PlayStation. So <laughs> Timeless classic. That's fun. Um, anyways, before we get too much more into the game, let's go ahead and uh, kick off with our own histories. Uh, Carl, how did you end up finding this one? I think it was probably James uh, bleating on about it on Twitter a lot um and, and talking about the multiple endings and i eventually looked into it and it was my it was my kind of game um it it's you know it follows a lot of tropes that we've seen in quite a lot of horror movies over the years and whilst mm, i'm not yeah. a huge fan of those kinds of, of horror in general the concept was quite interesting um and it seemed the closest to an interesting point and click which was probably my favorite genre growing through the 90s uh it, it seemed like a nice interesting throwback which was quite light on the puzzles, somewhat like the Professor Layton games, but less punishing. Like it, it wanted you to follow the story through. So when I read on all this, I decided that I wanted to get a copy. As I mentioned, it was a little bit too expensive. And thankfully, my friend came in and she said, well, look, feel free to borrow my copy as long as you want. I really liked it. Just, you know, enjoy your time with it and play through it. And then thankfully, it popped up on the uh, on the list of upcoming shows. And I was like, well, I better get it played. I like how the uh, the game about people with bombs being planted inside their bodies is less punishing than the Professor Layton series, too. <laughs> All right. And uh, James, how did you come across 999? I could have sworn this. If you'd asked me, I would have sworn it came out later than 2010 in North America because I got the feeling that it wasn't until uh, 2012 or so that I really started hearing people talking about this. Um, and it's uh, people like uh, Patrick Klepek in particular had mentioned this a couple of times. Um, and it was just one of those games that happens a lot, listening to a lot of podcasts and and that kind of thing, and just being on Twitter, where you hear people buzzing about certain aspects of games or, or games that do one or two things quite well or interestingly, um, and, and it piques your interest. And that's exactly what happened to me. So it ended up on my Christmas list, of all things, towards the end of 2012 and the reason I'm sure it can't have been that expensive and that that sounds really awful but uh, my brother bought it for my Christmas present and we don't (laughs) tend to spend masses on one another so if it had been outrageously expensive um, I wouldn't have have, uh, been worthy of uh, of that as a a Christmas (laughs) present so um, so yeah I got it at the end of 2012 and by I think about the 7th of January I'd cleared all six endings um, which probably tells you about how I how I devoured this game. Um, once I once I got tucked in, it kind of got its hooks into me, which is what 
Carl's referring to, I think, had it not been so difficult to get hold of over uh, this part of the world. Yeah, um, I had heard about this one through uh, through Slow Beef of of the Retsu Prey YouTube channel and uh, a moderator of the Let's Play board on Something Awful originally. Uh, I guess he's not anymore, but he used to be. Um, so that's how he kind of came into knowing of 999 as it was uh, kind of a popular Let's Play back in the day, as these visual novels tend to translate well into that format because you don't lose a lot from not playing something like this. Uh, anyways, really wanted to get Slow Beef on the show, but unfortunately it couldn't be wrangled. But uh, yeah, ever since then, he was really just talking it up so much and was so enthusiastic about it. And it sounded like something that I would uh, have a lot of interest in. So I, I gave it a go. I uh, played it maybe uh, two years ago and had uh, just recently gone back to it for the podcast. I, I just went through the, read through the Let's Play this time because I've already played the game and I was just kind of doing a refresher on the story, but I got all six endings originally or seven endings or however many. And uh, this time around, I, I reviewed all six endings as well, just to make sure that I understood this very, very complicated story in its entirety. And I have an absurd 16 pages of notes on the story. So yeah, it's nice. I have the entire thing flow charted out, uh, which we will not be discussing it in that great of detail for anyone who's worried. But, um, you know, just so I know everything. Ah, all right. Um, this game had a, uh, a, a pretty uh, good reaction, a good reception, especially when it came to North America, which is one of the things that was most notable about it. Visual novels, which are a, a genre that was kind of pioneered by Chunsoft, who uh, developed this one, uh, they called them sound novels uh, back when they were originally doing them, although that's a name that they trademarked, and so no other companies could label things as sound novels, and so the name of the genre kind of moved away from that, ironically. In 2006, I remember reading a statistic from Wikipedia, so it may or may not be true, <laughs> but 70% of games released in Japan are within the visual novel genre, the visual novel camp. The, uh, the Chunsoft studio was started by Koichi Nakamura, who was one of the lead designers of the Dragon Quest series, and you'll find um, members of Dragon Quest, uh, the team, all throughout the history of these visual novels. There is a distinction between proper visual novels and adventure games in Japan, and so I'd imagine something like this would ride the line between those two genres as this has more traditional visual novel format uh, storytelling segments and very involved um, escape-the-room type puzzle sequences. The visual novels are known for having extremely minimal gameplay. There's quite a healthy community of fan works uh, called doujinshi, there's a lot of software and websites and support for people who want to create their own fan works. And so this, this genre has really taken off uh, among the independent game scene over in Japan. I, th I think the, um, the other thing is that visual novels, with or without sort of puzzle segments in them, uh, more traditional, I suppose, puzzle segments, um, lend themselves to mobile gaming on phones and handhelds and that kind of thing, mm, yeah. especially with touchscreens being select from menu, option, dialogue choices, that kind of thing, you know. Um, in the same way that adventure games, point-and-click adventure games, would lend themselves to a touchscreen, these do. And so obviously in Japan that is very appealing and it, the, the story aspects of Persona games and stuff like that mm -hmm. are, are a reasonable touchstone for people who, who don't kind of get what, what we're talking about here. 
Yeah, the the first proper visual novel, oftentimes agreed upon. It's one of those genres where it's kind of hard to pin down the <laughs> the very start point. But uh, one of the very early ones was Portopia Serial Murder Case in 1983, created by Yuji Horii, uh, pre Dragon Quest, uh, also a member of the Dragon Quest team. In 1995, the adult game maker Elf uh, created an erotic game, Dokusei, uh, delivering brief kind of visual novel elements, and its sequel, Dokusei 2, focused on the storytelling elements even more than the erotic content, and it was a huge success, kind of shifting the focus of mini-game creators in Japan to more... um, heavily embrace the storytelling aspect of this the erotic game um genre is is huge huge over there and um you'll notice as you go through the history of visual novels that pretty much anyone who has their hands in the visual novel uh, space the scene in japan comes from either making erotic games or they kind of go back and forth between making erotic and non-erotic games and so if that's a uh, problem for people. Uh, I understand how a lot of you know Western and probably a lot of even Eastern players have uh, a lot of discomfort talking about hentai games and um, that kind of side of the dating sim uh, area. Then yeah, that can be kind of a, a touchstone that keeps coming up and up again. So yeah, that's kind of a little unavoidable. There are a few that have made their way over to the United States. 428 in the Block City Shibuya was a big one for the Wii. Uh, The Ace Attorney series was a staple on the DS in the United States and the 3DS as well, more recently. Digital Love Story and Analog A Hate Story were pretty big sellers on the Steam Marketplace, uh, as well as To the Moon, which we have covered in a previous episode culminated in the very popular Danganronpa for the PS Vita. Have you guys played any visual novels in the past? I've played a fair few on the likes of iOS and Android. Um, Nothing that particularly stands out. Uh, I own both the Danganronpa games. I own a few Phoenix Wright games. Uh, But I find that the, the time to go through them it, it's weird it's it it's like i have to focus purely on that experience in the same way that you know if i was reading a book i couldn't flit in and out of reading a book um with it's the same with these kinds of games and with with so much to play i do find it hard and um, when yeah. some windows open up i find that you know if, if i can sit down and focus my time purely on that i do really enjoy them uh you know as i mentioned as a, as a huge fan of point and clicks in the past and given that that's a genre that's somewhat past and this is kind of taking over uh, if, if I can sit down and enjoy it, that that's pretty good. But I do have issues playing on handheld systems. So there's mm. there's big pros and cons for it in that regard for me. But I, I do enjoy them and I do own a few and I do intend to get around to them, specifically the Danganronpa games. When I was thinking back on this more than when I was playing it at the time, um, I played a bit of, I don't think I ever got to the end of, Hotel Dusk Room 215, which was a, a DS yeah. kind of visual novel game about a detective at a hotel investigating and, and sort of blended a bit of uh, storytelling with a few sort of light puzzles, if I remember. Um, the other touchstone for me was uh, Professor Layton, which kind of walks the line a little mm. bit. There are certain mm-hmm. similarities with this game, definitely, but it is more heavy on the puzzle and gameplay aspect and the story really is just there to string it together rather than kind of it's the other way around with visual novels usually um but i'd certainly written that one that one down my interest in them kind of cemented with with 999 and it really reminded me of the old point and click adventure games 
but but scale back in terms of the amount of puzzling and logic you have to use. They, they tend to make them quite self-contained puzzles uh, in something like 999, which in some ways I appreciated more because you're not left scratching your head for something that happened you know, four hours ago that you need to try and remember yeah. to piece together. And I think it kind of keeps it very self-contained, which I appreciated. So nine hours is is unique in that half of the game is this visual novel in which you are just interacting with characters and learning the story. And half of it is uh, kind of escape the room type puzzles. Mm-hmm. That is a separate genre entirely. And, um, you know, this is another kind of very popular well, maybe like fringe popularity, but it ha- does have some notable examples in the past. Uh, Behind Closed Doors was a big one. It was a 1988 text adventure. Crimson Room uh, was a big one that was one of the early kind of like flash game examples of Escape the Room. And that's where you'll find a lot of these today is they, they really blossomed on like new grounds and places online where people can post because they're very relatively easy to make relatively asset light (laughs) and you know you're not having to program physics engines or anything like that and so people who wanted to be uh just kind of independent game developers and make their first game out of their you know mother's basement or whatever uh escape the room puzzles were a really great place to start and they gained such popularity that there are now kind of escape the room scenarios that people have created in real life that you can gather up a group of friends and, you know, lock yourself in this room and try to find clues and puzzles and solutions. I know mm. there's there's one in Seattle that I haven't been down to yet. There's one in San Francisco, I think, but they're uh, kind of popping up all over the place. So it's a interesting way that, that these um, video games have translated into real life. Yeah, I think part of the reason why um, perhaps they're quite popular amongst new game developers on indie scenes is that they require a very flowchart likes logic series in right. order to to design you know in order to get out of the room x y and z have to happen and they may have to happen in that order which means programming it i guess like programming something like a, a twine text adventure you you can build up the logic in layers and and make things more and more complicated without having to jump straight into the complex stuff you can kind of break it down and and almost sketch out on paper as you would a map of of say a, a Mario level or a basic platformer level, you can kind of do that in terms of the logic, which makes them easy to to kind of find a starting place and get that thread to start pulling on, if you like. There's also a very healthy lineage of films that this probably drew some inspiration from, the most obvious of which was Saw, which was a short film released in 2003, or probably better known as the feature film released in 2004, by the same director. And every year thereafter for about <laughs> that's, six years. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for those who are not, somehow are not familiar with Saw, that is uh, people are locked in a room and have to do gruesome and terrible things to themselves to find a like a key usually to unlock some sort of contraption that will kill them if they leave it unchecked. And so they are very much escape the room type scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, decidedly very dark and very gruesome. So, uh, yeah, and 999 definitely follows in, in those footsteps in that way. Actually, Saw 2 has more of a setup similar to what 999 does with having multiple people having to work together, be split into groups, come back together, not knowing who to trust, that kind of mm, thing, those kind yeah. of dynamics. Whereas the original film was a much more focused look at that with just, you know, two guys in one room. 
actually in terms of films. There was a film a couple of years before Saw 2 called Identity, which I don't know if either of you guys remember, but it yeah, was uh, John Cusack, uh, Ray Liotta. Uh, there, were sort of, there, were, there was a lot of people in there who were recognisable. Um, and it was not an Escape the Room, but an Escape the Motel um, film where eight strangers who don't know one another but seem to be connected or, or trapped essentially in this this area and they don't know who to trust but one of them seems to be uh, killing the others and I won't say any more than that because this isn't an identity spoiler yeah. uh, podcast but um, that, that reminded me quite a lot of it. My immediate reaction for a comparative film is also on the list of origins and influences. And it's a film I really didn't like, but it's Cube. Um, and it was more that it wasn't necessarily the Escape the Room style. It was the ever-changing groups going into different areas, almost you know the create-your-own-adventure-style books that we used to have. And it reminded me immediately when I was playing it of Cube. It's not a sort of straight adventure like some of the other games. Like, Professor Layton is an example. You, you do one area, you go to the next, you go to the next. In this, you would, um, obviously, as you probably guessed from the title, there's nine persons, um, and you would escape a room with one group, and then you may go into another group uh, via means of a certain a numerical score, uh, which we'll, we'll cover in a bit. And it, it's, you know, to get the multiple endings of the game, you progress through the rooms in a certain order. And that just really reminded me of, of Cube, that, you know, you could go this way or you could go that way, and it constantly changes the, the style of of the game. Um, so, yeah, that, that that was the one that I leaned on, and it's a film I really don't like, but it's in a genre I also really don't like, so that might explain it, but that was the one that absolutely rang true when I was playing this game. All right, so before we actually start talking about the, the story, I would like to give... The spoiler warning to end all spoiler warnings. Like yeah. this is a story, and that is all that this game is. Uh, it's a very clever story. There are some huge twists that uh, we are going to spoil in full. So if you've not played the game and it sounds at all interesting to you, I would urge you to please hunt down a copy or read through a let's play or just something. I'll just flat out do something that I've never done on any of the other episodes I've been on. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that if you're to this point and you've not played this game, then I recommend you play it. Because at the end of the show, mm. when we do our recommendations, there's no way that I would recommend you play this game if you hadn't beforehand and had the whole <laughs> thing spoiled. So That's right. I, I absolutely recommend playing it now. It's especially given on iOS, you can get the story in its condensed form, which I don't necessarily think is the best way to play the game, but... If the story is something you want to experience without necessarily having to worry about the puzzles and how long that's going to make the game, you know, etc. Uh, if you just want to know the story before you uh, you listen to the rest of this, then the iOS version seems like it would be the uh, the best way to go. And that's absolutely completely valid because, um, as I'll touch on in a, in a bit regarding the puzzles, they're not absolute mind benders. Like I. I I was able to go through mm-hmm. the whole game without using anything of the sorts of a guide. They are merely mm, yeah. gameplay elements amongst a story. They are not there to stall the player or anything like that. So uh, you can get a good experience by playing purely the story on iOS. Um, so if that's your only option, I absolutely recommend going through, you know, as James said, at least that before listening to the rest of this podcast if you have not played this game. 
Right, so consider that. We uniformly, strongly implore you to please play the game and don't let us spoil it for you because we would feel awful if we did. Uh, that said, we're going to be spoiling it for Carl, at least, because uh, you have a couple of the bad endings, but not yet any of the good endings. So uh, um, it'll be interesting to have yeah. uh, the opinion of somebody who's kind of witnessing these things for the first time. Yeah, it, it, it's. I thought this would be an interesting topic point. I've completed it twice. Uh, there are multiple endings. I haven't got the good endings, but with what I have, I formulate like an amateur sleuth uh, you know writing notes and is, mm-hmm. you know is this the big bad is this the villain we are um probably going to be briefly recapping some of the major events of the story although as we have uh, implored uh we hope that everyone who's still listening is uh, at least has played the game before they might not have played it recently and so we'd like to give a little bit of a refresher on things some of the characters and some of the big story beats along the way but uh, we're going to assume that you're at least on board with uh, a lot of um, a lot of the happenings of the uh, of the events of the story. You are meant to play this game through multiple times. Uh, there are a total of six endings, which we'll get more into later. But um, yeah, you'll be playing through uh, the first puzzle room six times if you want to get all six endings because mm-hmm. you can't skip these um, these puzzle rooms. But you can fast forward through the text. On your yes. second and third and fourth playthroughs. The, the text uh, you've seen nice. before, at least. Right, right. And it'll stop you anytime you get to a choice. Yeah, it'll slow you down and let you see what's new. Yeah, but un- unfortunately, the puzzles are unskippable. And so if you've already solved something, it'll be easier the second time around, but you're still going to have to solve it yourself. And by the sixth time, you'll be doing it blindfolded with one <laughs> hand behind your back. That's right. And it'll be really quick. Right, so let's uh, briefly go through the characters, uh, and it's it's pretty easy because they are already in order. So um, <laughs> we should briefly, I, I don't know, everyone's already played the game by this point, but just uh, give a little refresher. People appear on this uh, this mysterious ship in the middle of the ocean, or so we think, and they wake up in separate cabins from one another, each wearing a wristband that has a number on it, uh, number one through nine implying that there are nine of them on the ship, uh, more or less true. They get together and each create nicknames for themselves based on their number. Uh, the person with the number one bracelet is known as Ace. He's a, uh, a tall, kind of older gentleman with a you know, wild scientist-like hair and a long coat. He is kind of kind and grandfatherly throughout the game, throughout most of the endings anyways. And... Um, you know, he's one that I found myself kind of liking um, yeah, my first yeah. few times through the game. He's um, he's the oldest, and uh, there's kind of a, an age gap between three of the characters and, and all the rest. Yeah, and and he does take on kind of a, a leadership, almost fatherly uh, role mm-hmm. to some of the younger um, characters who are potentially more scared and um, less sure of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, he's the you know the there's maybe two wise heads amongst the whole team and he's he's sort of you know you mentioned the father figure the calming influence on the group the uh, number two bracelet is owned by snake he derived his name from the term snake eyes which is uh like a dice term um like if you roll two ones then you get snake eyes and uh that's where he got his name from ironically because he is blind and so the name snake eyes kind of has a double double meaning there he is Clover's older brother, who we'll meet later, 
And he is also a kind of a wise and mysterious character. You find yeah. out in one of the endings in particular that he has uh, a ludicrous amount of trivial knowledge. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's also very, very likable and very, very mysterious. I, I, I get the feeling that because the implication is because he's blind, he's got used to a world where he's not really in control of what's going on around him or he's not sure of what's going on around him. So he's actually mm. more calm in this situation than others would be. Yeah. We also find out later on there's other reasons for that as well. But initially you kind of get the notion that he's not relaxed by any means, but he's not willing to let himself lose uh, lose his head. Mm. He's also arguably the most confident in the team. Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so he does take a kind of a de facto leadership role as well, uh, kind of one that everyone can depend on. Mm-hmm. Good old snake. Number three is Santa, uh, derived from the Japanese name for the number three is San. And so Santa is kind of a nice, uh, and he has white hair, dresses in all white. And so that's kind of Santa-like. He is uh, kind of mysterious and very moody, is very prone to fighting with the yeah. other characters. Yeah, he's got uh, a very fiery temper and... Uh, yeah. Prone to profanity. <laughs> yep. And it can seem quite uh, impulsive at times. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you'll find out later that there are sometimes reasons for um, him doing things that appear to be kind of rude and illogical, but that is uh, for a later discussion. Number four is Clover, who is named after a four-leaf clover. Uh, she is Snake's younger sister, although she has bright pink hair and really doesn't look anything like him she has very kind of <laughs> wild appearance she's a lot of fun she's a, a very kind of childlike at the beginning mm-hmm. but due to the events some things that happen during the game she gets to be quite sullen and uh, a little scary at times and actually uh, at one very specific time a lot scary Um, she's the youngest of the group by three years I believe she's 18 according to her sort of character fact sheet yeah she's kind of dressed in a um, almost schoolgirl type outfit Mm -hmm. which leads you to project onto her that she's much younger than everyone else who appears to be mostly in either you know casual clothes or work clothes type thing Um, she doesn't often behave outrageously like that but as you say she certainly she's one of the characters whose mood and uh sort of the tone of her character shifts quite quite distinctly and noticeably where some of the other characters are a bit more sort of even all the way through yeah Uh, number five is the player character named junpei or jumpy as uh as his friend likes to call him he is friends with the person with the number six bracelet from elementary school yeah, he's just kind of a dopey, kind of a, just a normal guy. Um, doesn't appear to be all that smart. Not until you get uh, later on in the game, at least. <laughs> <laughs> then he at least expresses um, kind of a normal level of intelligence. <laughs> but before then, he's definitely operating on deficits. He has a, a terrible grating sense of humor that you can find by examining objects multiple times. But for those of you who are... Uh, not curious about examining things multiple times maybe you have been blissfully unaware of his terrible jokes and that would be a uh, that would be a real dream to play the game in that way yeah he he he's like in, in a scale of one to ten he's he's the five you know he's right in the middle he's completely <laughs> vanilla um but you know it's nothing too dissimilar to what you'd expect to see in, in in many games he reminds me of say the lead protagonist from say persona three or persona four um but probably yeah 
in, in terms yeah, of yeah, image, sure. age, style of personality, that kind of thing. Yeah, he's, he's purely for the player to put themselves on. He doesn't have a name, uh, he doesn't have a nickname anyways. He goes by his real name, Junpei. And that is because one of the other characters who knows him accidentally called him by his real name before he was uh, allowed to give a nickname to himself. And so before, everyone was yeah. like, well, yeah, we know who you are. We might as well just call you that. It, it, yeah, it's worth saying that, obviously, as you said, Snake picks that because it reflects the number two. That's not his real name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group decides that in order to keep uh, their captor, Zero, from from knowing any more about them than they may already know, uh, that they shouldn't reveal too much information to one another in case uh, Zero is listening in and keeping tabs on them. Um, right. Which, on the one hand, seems kind of sensible, but on the other hand, the character that makes that suggestion, you kind of feel should really want to know a bit more about what's going on in the situation <laughs> than, than they do, uh, which is number seven, and we'll get to him, obviously, in a, mm. in a couple of characters' time. But Right. Number six is June. Junpei's friend from childhood, from elementary school, although they haven't seen each other in very many years. Uh, She's a very kind of normal, I don't know, I don't know how to describe her other than being just excessively normal. She and Junpei have very kind of flirty interactions. Quite happy, cheery character, Mm -hmm. generally. Right, she is named June after the sixth month of the year. Um, Seems appropriate. Next character is nicknamed Seven because he has seven on his bracelet and uh, seems to be excessively uncreative. He's a a very, very big man. Um, He has amnesia, uh, no memory of his former life, uh, doesn't even know his real name if he wanted to remember it. Yeah, he, he comes off as being a bit of a big, dumb bruiser at the beginning, and so the name Seven kind of reflects that. Uh, being uncreative and not able to come up with some great literary illusion or anything to base his name on. But um, yeah, he's uh, he, he's quite a lovable character later on, I think you'll find. Yeah. He's one that is very good-natured and is actually quite a bit smarter than he looks at the beginning. <laughs> he's also the character that follows everyone's favorite video game trope of amnesia. Uh, that's right. Number eight is Lotus. Uh, she names herself that because the Lotus flower supposedly has eight petals, although it has many more. But I think in like traditional uh, Buddhist depictions of the Lotus flower, yeah, it's artist has eight petals, yeah. kind of reflecting the noble eightfold path of Buddhism. So there are some connections that you can make. Um, Lotus is uh, she's dressed like a belly dancer, very kind of like sexy way one of those Japanese visual novel elements that doesn't translate over all that well hmm. to uh, Western audiences. It, it comes off as being a little, it can be a little bit jarring right off the bat. It, it's a strange image because, I mean, Belly Dancer should have been what I thought, but my original thought was Slave Leia or maybe even a fortune teller. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's, you know, she, she she's the one that you would, you know, there's, there's got to be one. Um, she's the one with like the huge boobs and the really skimpy outfit and she looks about 19 which is kind of weird because the way the story develops for her but um she's almost the one that you think oh i don't really you know how do i how do i respond to her as a character because she has an image that's quite different to everyone else Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. but you know we'll talk about it later on but what i would say is from my two completions she's probably my favorite character 
the one thing I will say now, which is a bit of a saving grace with this character, is as soon as we see her, I think our reaction is kind of supposed to be she's a bit out of place. And it's yeah. actually mentioned almost immediately by Junpei. He has sort of this internal monologue where he's giving all these characters nicknames because he doesn't know their name, just to remember them by. Um, and he actually uh, internally points out that she's dressed very strangely, rather skimpily. Why is she dressed that way? And kind of what's the point? Um, we later learn out that all these people were... Uh, abducted, I, not later, fairly fairly quickly actually, they come to the conclusion that they were all abducted in much the same way. And so much like any of these uh, films we've, we've mentioned, these characters don't necessarily end up on the ship prepared to be on the ship because they didn't, you know, they were just pulled out of their, uh, their lives and presumably she came home. Uh, it, it turns out, I think, that she, she is a dancer. Um, and she came home from work and was abducted in those clothes. So She does actually turn out to be a fairly interesting character. She can be quite mean and cruel and uncaring. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And she's referred to by other characters as being quite old and at times being like a like a prune or like a raisin or something. Yeah, and she's really certainly not weird. drawn that way. No. Which, you know, if they're going for sex appeal, I can, I can see why they wouldn't want to draw her like a grandma. But all the characters keep referring to how old she is and how uncomfortable they are with like seeing as much of her as they are and uh yeah it's just that didn't translate over to the art at all she's supposed to be 40 um okay that's that's not old according to her her character (laughs) sheet which isn't old but no but by comparison to the majority of the characters who are very typical um representations of of japanese video game characters in terms of being late teens 20 kind of age 40 seems old to those people i suppose um (laughs) but yeah i seem to remember some of the the two older male characters seven and ace refer to the fact that she is old as well which given both of them are supposed to be older than her is kind of a bit rich but yeah be that like female double standard type thing yeah yeah i think yeah quite possibly and also her outfit obviously is as you say mentioned as a contributing factor to that and the number nine bracelet is, uh, for a very short while, owned by the ninth man. Uh, he never gave himself a nickname because he immediately got himself killed. <laughs> I don't think that's a spoiler. This happens in the first scene of the game. He's a very kind of jittery man with very kind of wild hair, appears to be scared out of his mind, immediately takes Clover hostage with a knife, and uh, tries to get through a door, and promptly explodes on the other end before the rules have been explained to him it shows the stakes of what's happening yeah it show, shows the rules are real and it shows that the um the captor isn't bluffing basically so yeah, right it's it's exactly that role but again we find out later on that actually there is reason behind the way he's acting more yeah. than just he's nervous about the situation he's in he understands more about the situation than perhaps uh we realize for some time so yeah, so he uh, we don't get to know him all that much. We get to learn a little bit more about him later on, but for the most part, he's just kind of uh, a strange oddity that you see every time you start up a new game. There is, of course, one more very heavy presence in this game, and that is Zero. Presumably somebody with a Zero bracelet, although uh, you know there's no, no, necess- no reason necessarily why he would be wearing a Zero bracelet. Um, hmm. He's not playing the game, or so we believe for a while you know there's there's some back and forth discussion on whether or not zero is one of the players yeah zero is the one who abducted everybody 
is this mysterious figure wearing a gas mask as he uh, gassed everybody to Mm -hmm. uh, knock them out and abduct them in the first place and is giving them instructions throughout the game. And so one of the big mysteries throughout the game is who is Zero? How is he uh, tied back into everything? So that is our cast. A very uh, wide range of of very strong and interesting personalities who all end up making an interesting about turn at some point during their characterization that that defies all expectations. Yeah, I think every character has a a journey to some greater... No, actually to some great extent once you've seen all the endings. Um, I think, interestingly, um, the the game that we're about to discuss that they're playing, The Behest of Zero, is called the Nonary Game, which is... Nonary is the name for a base nine numerical system, um, which in which the numbers would be zero to eight, which, interestingly, hmm. is, well, possibly, fittingly, why uh, the ninth man is is killed off immediately, because it leaves... One to eight plus the mysterious zero as the players in the game. So that is interesting. I hadn't made that connection. It's not not an important one. It's just a, something I, <laughs> I I thought about today when making some notes. So. Yeah. So they are forced to play the nonary game. This is very much like Saw. Like you have to participate with the rules of this game if you want any hope of escaping the ship alive. Um, there are just a few simple rules, and it gets a little bit more complicated as you go through the game. Although, you know, not to the extent that the that they do in the sequel, that has kind of constantly changing rules. But yeah, there are a few more discoveries you make throughout. Uh, the basic rules of the Nonary game state that there are several numbered doors throughout the ship. Only three to five people can pass through each door. The bracelets of those passing through the doors must must have a digital route matching that of the number on the door once they activate the recognition device outside of the door they must also activate the deactivation device on the inside of the door just to make sure that uh none of them duck out at the last minute that everybody goes through that's supposed to Mm -hmm. and if they don't then they will uh they will explode violently as we see happen to a couple characters. They have 81 seconds to register themselves as having entered the room. Right. And if they don't, then yeah, their uh, their bracelets will not be happy. Right. We mentioned the digital route earlier. That is a uh, kind of a mathematical term that says that we add all numbers to one another. If we end up with something greater than a single digit number, we add those digits to one another and we keep adding the digits in this matter until we have a single digit answer. And so, for example, the digital root of 678 would be 6 plus 7 plus 8 equals 21, 2 plus 1 equals 3. So the digital root of 678 would be 3. So, yeah, the characters wearing bracelets 6, 7, and 8 could all pass through the door with a number 3 on it. Right. As you progress through the game, different combinations of players have to split off, and that's what you were talking about, Ryan, where mm-hmm. uh, you'll split off into two groups, say, uh, and then after you've passed through each of your two rooms, you'll come back together on the other side, and then you'll have to split into different groups because the different numbers on the doors allowing you to pass through those. So it kind of keeps the cast list rotating and dynamic so you get to know everyone a little bit because obviously Junpei is going through with different people um, and there are multiple combinations of people, which comes into play with the second to sixth playthroughs, where you're choosing different groups of people to go through different doors in you know different orders, as it were. Um, so it all kind of works in nicely, and must have taken a lot of planning to make sure that yeah, they had all yeah. the all the rooms and routes uh, working out together uh, well. So 
And some of the twists are very contingent upon the numbers on people's bracelets and very much. making sure that people went through certain doors together or people would be precluded from entering a certain door with somebody else specifically. And so I can't even imagine the amount of work that must have gone into yeah, <laughs> planning all, all this out beforehand. Yeah, Mm-hmm. But basically, we'll just kind of give a broad overview of the story. We uh, we meet up with everybody after we solve the puzzle to get out of our own room, uh, speaking as Junpei here, the player character. We're given three, two or three choices throughout the game of which door of, uh, you know, usually three choices that we enter. For some reason, it always comes down to Junpei to make the final decision. I I guess nobody else has as strong an opinion as he does. And so, you know, we as the player get to make that choice. And depending on which of those three doors we make, uh, we choose to go through at each of those three decision points, uh, we'll be going through two separate puzzle rooms. And so there are puzzle rooms hidden behind each of those doors and uh, there are enough puzzle rooms to where we can go through the game you know however many times it takes us to get all the endings and never have to come across the same one twice except for the uh, the one that we have to go through every single time at the very beginning of the game but I, I yeah. think that you can you can get each ending without having to repeat any of them although that might require some foreknowledge of uh, which ones to avoid early on so that you can get them when you have some more information later in later playthroughs. Yeah, that would need some pretty pretty special planning. Uh, probably just mm. go to a fac, and there are flowcharts out there that tell you how to go through the game, right. which rooms to pick on, which playthroughs and stuff. But um, I don't know about you guys. I, I quite enjoyed going through the first couple of times just picking the different routes that I could spot yeah. um, before yeah. I, I then needed to resort to kind of putting it out on paper and checking, making sure I knew which rooms I'd been through for which endings, etc. Well, I think it's important to state now that you know, there are nine doors, quite clearly it's in the title, but you don't use all nine doors in one playthrough, which is where the multiple playthroughs come in because you pick those very specific routes. And like, and like you, James, my first playthrough, I chose whatever I wanted. And I did the same yeah. on my second playthrough, actually, because a part of the reason for this is I didn't want to come into this podcast having looked at uh, a guide in any way and had stuff spoiled before we had a chance to discuss it. So on future yeah. playthroughs, I'll make sure it's all structured in a certain way. But um, it does an interesting new game plus thing where you maintain your memories uh, and you can check where you've been uh, and then you can actually go either go into a new game at your previous save point, start it again clean, or actually go in whilst maintaining those memories. And then all your choices are grayed out boxes. So you know which choice or which partnership that you chose to go through a certain door. Say the first door is... Uh, you know, you, you choose which team you want in that pretty... It's a set door, so you choose one of three sets of two. Um, I chose Snake Eyes and Seven on my very first playthrough, uh, so as a result, I knew which direction I went in, and when I came through on my second playthrough, it was grayed out, so I knew I'd taken that one. That's a really interesting way of restructuring the game, so you're not constantly having to write stuff down or remember the game actually does that stuff for you. Yeah, and it also works all that into the story as well. Um, yes. Again, by the time you've seen multiple endings you'll understand why Junpei might be able to tell what's been done before I'll leave it at that until we get there yeah that's interesting because um, Uh, it never truly paints that it's going to happen but at one point on my second playthrough um, I was able to force a point through and when everyone's saying why do you want to do that he's like I just have a feeling I know 
we end up splitting up the various groups throughout the game and uh, going through these separate numbered doors. And then we always seem to regroup later on, which is nice. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to explore things with different groups of people and gives the, uh, the individuals time to share what they have learned in their, in their separate respective rooms. So yeah, the first time that you regroup is in the uh, kind of infirmary, the hospital room of this, this massive ship that you're in. You're faced with a, a second row of doors, although the activation devices, the uh, recognition devices outside the doors have been stripped of their parts and are, are no longer functional. And so you can't get through them. So you have to uh, go and search out for the parts. And while you're doing that, one of the characters goes missing. That is Snake. Unfortunately, he uh, somehow gets separated from the group and we are unable to find him. Obviously, Clover, his sister, is very, uh, very disturbed by this. We look all over for Snake, and we can't find him, so we just decide we need to press on. We need to go through the next set of doors. We're running out of time, and, you know, we got to solve these puzzles. Uh, depending on which room you decide to go into, we can find, if we happen to go through the shower room, that there is another body exploded and mangled and in all sorts of, of an awful state, and... Uh, yeah, that is uh, somebody had had picked Snake out of the group and managed to open up the door somehow, throw him in, and since not everyone was with him to deactivate on the other side, his bracelet exploded and he uh, met a rather unfortunate end, so we think. And, and this is the point where in my second playthrough, I was able to force my way into door number three, um, whereas the, the straight choice is between doors seven and eight. Right, um, yeah. And on my first playthrough, I chose door eight. On my second playthrough, I was able to to, uh, to force the choice, which wasn't so much of a choice because yep. it made it made it an awkward match on the numbers. And when they quizzed me on why I wanted to go into three, I was able to state that you know I just have a feeling there's something. Um, and when you go in there, that's where you obviously find out that the snake eyes has somewhat exploded. It, it it's kind of strange because it draws this feud you know you start breaking uh the group apart because santa isn't best pleased that you sort of overrule the group and you force your way through and you trick people so that you can get into that door and and whatnot it it you know all that starts to play in the multiple playthroughs yeah how you interact with the group and you, you start pulling out that little information yeah people start kind of second guessing one another in terms of motives why do people want to stay behind or go with certain people or why do you Junpei want to go through a particular door and it's all kind of lots of second guessing for these nine characters who mostly don't know one another and don't know how much they can trust one another this this sort of second uh, point where you get to the hospital room that's kind of where the dynamics of the characters uh, and then on multiple playthroughs that's where it really picks up and you start to try and work out what's going on with each of the characters so snake is out of the group the ninth man is out uh that leaves just seven of us left trying to solve these puzzles we go through a third set of doors most of the time i think there is one ending that uh ends after the second set of doors but uh, most of the time we'll be going through the third set of doors and um that will usually issue us into one of the bad endings typically unless we followed very specific routes along the way. These bad endings seem to kind of come out of nowhere. They, they happen very suddenly, very grim, very dark, uh, which is a bit unfortunate. I, I think that these various endings, we don't really learn a lot from the ending specifically. The axe endings, very... The Clover is so bereaved by her brother's passing that she 
takes an axe to everyone on the ship, uh, which is uh, <laughs> that's that's a real moment there. Yeah, it's a surprisingly violent ending in that she goes down a lift with three other people mm -hmm. and then returns on her own. And she explains what she did when she gets her bracelets. And she's like, come on, let's go. And she mentions your number. It's because her and Junpei's numbers add to nine and she has a zero bracelet that, that she got from the, yes, uh, from the captain's uh, cabin. There's two other people who also add up to nine, if I remember correctly. At this point, because I remember thinking, well, surely both groups could technically leave if they're both nines. And she goes to offer you a hand and she's like, come on, come on. You're like, oh, okay then. And then all of a sudden <laughs> the screen just goes red. Um, that was quite funny. It's it's a really weird uh, way of looking at it because Junpei goes through this horror of realizing what the fact that she has the three bracelets. Um, so one of the rules that Zero mentions, or one of the um, actually, it's Snake has this information because he got a different set of instructions to everyone else, is that um, if you leave, the bracelet will deactivate. Or if you die, the bracelet will deactivate. So the fact that um, Clover has the three bracelets from the other group, one of which is June, who uh, I think through every version of the story, one way or another, you end up um, having very... You, you realise that Junpei and June are having uh, the beginnings of a, a re reigniting of their relationship. Um, and so... Junpei is just in despair at this point. And then there's this really weird section where Clover's holding her hand out when it talks about her dead eyes and her sort of twisted smile. Um, and then Junpei starts in an internal monologue to kind of almost feel like he's falling in love with her. There's kind of a soporific effect where he's losing control and just, you know, uh, losing control of himself and just going to go with her presumably because it's the easier thing to do. And then, yeah, you realise that as soon as you've done that, she, she kind of takes your hand and then slings an axe into the back of your head, which is just this bizarre turn for this character that has yeah. gone through being the kind of bright light of the group to begin with to being, you know, incredibly uh, grief-stricken when she finds out the snake's dead. And the first That's people she, she takes out um, are the people she thinks could have killed him. So the people who were in a group with him at the time. Uh, and then you realise that actually by the time she finds you, she's she's taken out everyone. Um, and it, just this bizarre, very uh, morbid, uh, almost like Joker-esque type ending is, is the only mm -hmm. character that I can yeah. think of that reminds me of her actions there. It's just... It's one of those surprisingly dark things. And this, this was yeah. how I ended my first playthrough, was with the Axe playthrough. And there's a bit where she's really grief-stricken and then Junpei swears that he thinks he saw her smile. And then the game continues on for a bit where she's sort of semi-upset when she goes down the lift. But there's a bit in the captain's bridge where he thinks she saw a smile. And, and there's there's a few hints on the way there that something's going to happen. You know, yeah. she's got something in her pocket and a wooden stick sticking out of her back. But, you know, it doesn't take a genius to realise what the wooden stick is because there was only one wooden stick in that room and it was an axe because... The body of the captain was on the floor, um, killed with an axe, yeah. and the captain surprisingly had the zero bracelet on his wrist. It's a very surprising ending. I'd say that's the only bad ending that really added anything to the game for me. I, I feel like the other bad endings were, uh, they just kind of ended the game in a kind of uninteresting way. They added that sense of seriousness and of utility that uh, the game is trying to impress upon us but other than that kind of tone setting I didn't really learn anything from any of the other bad endings with the X ending being a notable exception 
So in, in the Acts ending, there are several passages where Ace is acting quite suspiciously in terms mm. of you, Clover, and Ace are together and you and Ace have run off um, and uh, and found a part of a map and, and he then runs off. But there are some things he says where it seems like he's starting to act in a way that is counter to how you would expect him to be acting. I can't really put pinpoint it terribly well, Um Despite, even despite having rewatched the ending today, uh, it's just there are things about the things he says and does, the way he starts treating other characters. There's a certain amount of uh, sus- suspicion, I think, at that point. Yeah. This was the second ending I had that he knows more about these characters than he he would in, in this situation. When you decide what doors you go through, everyone puts pieces of paper in. Um, and... You know, as you mentioned earlier, your character always gets the last say, and you realise that you can make any choice you want because you can rig the vote, as you know any truly political vote goes. And you make your way, and you choose the bridge with uh, it would be Clover and Ace. And there's a, yep. there's a point where Ace has been really friendly, and he leaves the room. And then all of a sudden, you start feeling a bit ill, a bit odd. And Ace just comes in and he just starts rummaging through your pockets and you sort of can't fight him off. And he's like, what's happening? And he finds the pieces of paper. And then there's this real moment where you think, well, that was a bit of a dark turn for him. Like for every other point that you've seen him up to that point, he's yeah, always been really yeah. even. He's always been like the leader. You know, you can't fight amongst the group, etc. And then he's the one that's raiding your pockets. And he's like, well, you know, I got to go where I wanted. But, you know, this and that was a bit of a strange moment. That's the first... That's sort of the real... That was, for me, the second hint that, that there was something going on with Ace. There were some people like uh, Santa. I always had... The, the, I came across no loose ends, and he was quite smart but quite fiery, but you know, I had no reason to distrust him. Lotus, again, mm-hmm. she's very forward and quite honest. I never felt any reason that, that she would be the villain. Again, Clover, she was loyal to her brother, and her brother dies. So that starts... You know, the numbers start tumbling down at this point. Seven's an interesting character because mm. he's always leaving doors open mm, with yeah. like a broom or a screwdriver or whatever so you can go back in. And that that's quite interesting, but you later discover that he was a police officer and yep. maybe that stuff came naturally to him. So it, the ones that were really suspicious for me were June was interesting because she was almost too innocent. Uh, she's the <laughs> only one who knew you beforehand. She's very smart. She gives away your name immediately and then plays the game. You know, she's like, oh, well, I'll give my name and stuff, but it's a bit suspicious. And she always liked you as a child and you liked her, but you were afraid to show it. And you share those embarrassments now. And it's always that thing, never trust the one that was jilted. Right. So and she's always there. You know, she plays the smart ground, but she never, you know, she never um, gets suspicions about her because she doesn't go over and above, over and above, and she's not aggressive and stuff. And she's almost too perfect. So that was the suspicion. The real one was Ace, because there were a few moments. There's mm-hmm. the one moment where you choose uh, between doors three, seven, and eight, and he says, "Well, look, I can't go through, so I'll just wait here. <laughs> I trust you'll come back to me." Now, and then he takes a, a needle to himself to knock himself unconscious. Or, that's what you believe, etc. Now, there's, it's obviously to do with a pharmaceutical company, and you think, well, he's the only one that's actually shown any sign of using anything that would be from a pharmaceutical company. So there was that. Secondly, there was, if he's willing to stay back, you start to think, well, in that circumstances, can he get out anyway? Then there's the fact that 
uh, Snake Eyes dies behind door number two. Uh, door number three, sorry. So, in terms mm. of the numbers, if Ace took Nine's bracelet, he himself and t- and Snake Eyes could get through that door. So he could have set Snake Eyes up. And lastly, in the submarine ending, Lotus's bracelet's missing. And we know he's been to the bridge. So if he had bracelet zero, eight, and his own, one, that's nine. So he could get out again. Um, so these things, all the things... And obviously then there was that moment on the bridge where he acted a bit out of character. But it was mainly those moments. Uh, so Ace was like my number one suspicion for being for being a villain. Um, because just too many numbers, literally too many numbers added up. As, as I said, June, she was almost too perfect. So they were the two that I suspected you know, I was a bit suspicious of. Other than that, I don't know a lot about Santa. So, you know, there was that. But it was really Ace and June were the two that, that my notes led me to from my two playthroughs. Right, those are good thoughts there. Well, well uh, I think you'll be surprised by certain things, but you'll also be reaffirmed as we start to talk <laughs> about the two good endings. The safe ending and the true ending, which require completion of all the previous endings, Not necessarily. I think it's only the safe ending that you need to complete beforehand. Uh, We come across a safe earlier in the game, potentially, depending on the playthrough you went through, in the first class cabin. It is unused in the puzzle for that room, which is unusual. And so, you know, it'll make a strong impression in your mind, especially since the safe is something that, you know, secrets are kept within and you're always on the lookout for secrets and answers and stuff. But if we uh, follow a certain pathway, then Clover gets lost at one point and we have to go and search for her. And it's actually Seven that finds her and uh, finds her murdered, unfortunately, stabbed in the back. Um, we find that she's holding a note in her uh, in her left hand. It's a riddle on this note, something to do with the sinister hand and truth is gone, truth is gone, truth is gone, as has been said, um, which we interpret as the sinister hand is the left hand. Uh, I believe that's like a, a, a actual term. Um, for the left hand and uh, that refers to the bracelet which we are wearing on our left hand and truth has gone is a way of uh, synonyms for truth meaning right and gone meaning left and so it's a sequence of uh, inputting the right and left buttons on our uh, little watch to make a sequence of numbers appear that is a combination that uh, opens up the safe in this first class cabin and inside we find a series of of notes that give us some big answers to some of our questions um, such as the nonary game was played once before nine years ago the person with the number two bracelet attended the game nine years ago that is snake it was planned by the following four people the cradle ceo uh Cradle Pharmaceuticals, a uh, company whose name has popped up here and there again and again, the Cradle Chief of Staff, the Cradle RNG su- um, Supervisor, and the Majority Shareholder in Cradle Pharmaceutical. I must punish them for the innocent lives they sacrificed. This is the only warning they will receive, and that innocent souls might be saved. I now state the truth. Signed, Zero. So that, that gives us a few answers, and we go on to accuse Ace of planning all of this, or of being involved to some extent, anyways. We find out that it was Ace that killed Snake, and that he has prosopagnosia, condition in which a an individual cannot recognize human faces, 
And so the example that they gave in the game was that, uh, you know, you go to the zoo and you can't tell the chimpanzees apart because they all kind of look the same to you. It's kind of the same way people who have that condition with people that, uh, you know, they, they all look indistinguishable, at least from their face. Yeah. And so they tend to latch on to things like uh, like clothing styles or voices. And so we um, were able to suss out that Ace is afflicted by this condition and he accidentally killed uh, one of the other higher-ups in Cradle Farm Pharmaceuticals instead of Snake, who is still alive somehow. Uh, that uh, Snake's outfit was put on this other Cradle Pharmaceutical board member who was drugged and kind of left to where Ace could find him, thinking that he's Snake because he doesn't recognize the face, throws him behind the door and listens to him explode. Yeah, I guess we should get a little bit more into, before we go on, the first Nonary game. This is the one that we're playing, is actually the second of these types of games that have been played. The first one happened nine years ago, and it was an experiment run by Cradle Pharmaceuticals uh, to test... Uh, morphic fields uh, to do with morphic resonance, right. which is a, a pretty much debunked theory. It's, it's all pseudoscience. <laughs> There's a lot of pseudoscience in amongst uh, yeah. this game. You find clues mm. leading up to it. Um, and uh, there have been clues throughout the story up to this point um, that hints at this being somehow significant, etc. Um, the, the notion is that uh, a bit like um, parallel evolution or, or more specifically parallel speciation where um, separate groups of the same species evolve in a similar way at a similar time, but without having any communication between those two groups. And it's the notion that therefore there's some kind of telepathic or hidden trigger that causes that. Um, and, and scientifically, that's that's not true uh, as, as we understand it. It's kind of been pretty much debunked. But um, a bit like uh, Dan Brown likes to use kind of pseudoscience and pseudohistory to, uh, to build these kind of intricate stories. Um, that's kind of where they've gone with this story in regards to morphic resonance and ice nine and stuff like that. So there were nine pairs of siblings of children mm -hmm. who were abducted nine years ago and forced to play this game in two separate locations, each one being separated from their sibling for the most mm -hmm. part. And mm -hmm. uh, half of them were on the ship in the middle of the ocean, kind of like we are. And half of them are, housed in a like a building in the middle of the Nevada desert that is built to uh, be an exact exact replica of this ship uh, including all the same puzzles the same design and everything and the uh, the idea is that the people that are in the Nevada desert scenario would be solving these puzzles and would be kind of telepathically communicating the answers to these puzzles to the people on the ship which yeah. i don't really understand yeah, because what if the people on the ship are just naturally better at solving the puzzles anyways and so they're going to be ahead of the people in nevada but either way doesn't matter uh it's kind of like remotely working together on the solutions to these various puzzle rooms uh, yeah. which is why yeah. there are all these puzzle rooms set up to begin with and um it's hoping to better understand this idea of writing to this collective unconscious field and reading from it. And the idea is that perhaps we are all subconsciously linked somehow. Uh, they give a really interesting example of a 
of a science experiment um, that was done on British television in which there was two kind of ambiguous paintings. Um, They're like photographs with a weird, like a Photoshop filter applied to them. And so they just kind of look like ink blots that are impossible to determine what they are just by looking at them. But if somebody pointed out like, oh, this one's a dog, here you see its its head and here's its legs and its body is kind of angled back that way, then you would be able to see it every single time afterwards. Yeah, uh, yeah. Kind of one of those, uh, um, you know, psychology tricks that you can play on people. Um, yeah. There were two pictures, one of a woman in a hat and one of a dog. They were given to people outside of Britain in various locations, a thousand participants in Ireland, United States, and Africa, throughout Europe. And uh, people were asked to identify what they are. And I, I believe like 9% of people got the woman in the hat correct, and 3% of people got the dog correct. And then the dog solution was shown on British television to an audience of 10,000 people. Another group of almost a thousand participants outside of Britain in which, uh, you know, they would not have seen this broadcast were re-examined on these two items. The woman in the hat, 10% of people got that right, which is not a significant difference. And uh, 6% of people got the, the dog picture right, which is a very significant difference from the 3% from before. And their idea was that since the uh, since 10,000 people knew the answer to this dog riddle now, that it was more available in this collective unconscious space and could be, I guess, read and pulled upon as knowledge yeah. by, um, by the participants in this study more easily. Um, and so the, uh, the idea is that if, if cradle pharmaceuticals could find a way to write to this collective unconscious field, this morphic field that connects humanity subconsciously, then they could exhibit great influence. They were saying that if 10,000 people did a handstand all at once, then it would be written into this collective unconscious field. And perhaps somebody who was completely unaware that this great mass handstanding was taking place would also be compelled to do a handstand. And, um, and then they went on to say, what if one person had the power of, uh, of 10,000 people and could basically write that large of an influence onto this morphic field? What kind of power could they possess? They could sway elections. They could sway the behavior of people, of buying patterns, stuff like that. So uh, yeah, this, this experiment nine years ago was done to try to better understand this this effect of transmitting things psychically. It was one of these really interesting things because it the, the whole game is based around that this is why it's happening. But mm-hmm. the thing that I found most fascinating was when it described that it was output in Britain and then it was shown again in places that couldn't get the information from Britain and then it names Ireland. I'm thinking <laughs> someone probably should have looked at a map. <laughs> I think, you know, a couple of families that were down on holiday probably weren't uh, enough to throw the results that much, but <laughs> it, it is uh, not as geographically remote as the game. Tried to make it out the same. Ireland, and then in the same sentence, it mentions Africa. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the other important note for this is that uh, for Ace, on, on his behalf, um, what he hopes is that if he can somehow tap and exploit this kind of collective memory, then he would be able to tap into that to recognize people's faces. 
that that person's face would be written into the collective um, memory. And, and if he shared that, then he wouldn't suffer so badly with his um, prosopagnosia. But obviously, yeah, cradle pharmaceuticals are looking to exploit it in, in other ways. Um, and that's why they judge this experiment of, base, of kidnapping yeah. um, and putting into very dangerous situations. Because that's the other thing. The idea is that morphic resonance is stronger and um, more accessible to people who are in danger. They will subconsciously tap into this more successfully yeah. if they are in heightened situations of, of danger and heightened fear, etc. It's the same as, you know, you, you can be physically strong where yeah, someone yeah. can lift a car off a child, etc. It, it's the mental equivalent of that. We should probably mention that that of the, uh, the, the game, the nonary game nine years ago, two of the children that were taken were Lotus's children. But it comes out when Seven is aware of her surname because he starts recalling certain names and the location and possibly have been on the ship in the past. And he, yeah. he discovered he was actually the detective on that case. So they get brought, you know, they get drawn in from the nonary game nine years ago. That's right. We do find out that everyone is related to this somehow. Uh, obviously, um, Ace is the one or is one of the four people who who set up the nonary game originally nine years ago and uh doesn't seem to be in charge of things this time around but it certainly paints him in a very suspicious light lotus is the mother of two of the children a snake obviously participated as was mentioned in the note and it would stand to reason that clover had participated as well being his sister we'll discover a couple more participants later on <laughs> but um we find that the that the code that we entered into this safe also works on the coffin that's in front of the nine door and uh we find snake inside very much alive which is exciting and fun uh because he's a fun character uh he seems to be disoriented as if he had been drugged or something like that and dressed in mm -hmm. a ceremonial robes uh which is a concession you know because they had to get him out of his clothes so they can put it on to this other guy so that ace would ace think would that he's tricked, snake yeah. and would kill him anyways mm -hmm. uh long story there as is everything in this game they end up chasing ace and lotus through the nine door ace kidnaps lotus as uh, as we accuse ace it becomes pretty clear that there's no uh there is zero escaping for him uh he becomes pretty universally detested and so he picks up a revolver where he found somewhere on the ship and takes lotus hostage and basically makes a run for the door because you know yeah. he has the nine bracelet he has the one which he's wearing and the eight which lotus is wearing and so they they just you know lotus is taken as an unwilling companion through the nine door the um the trick of the nine bracelet is that uh for any two other people the nine bracelet is basically a freebie because it doesn't adjust the digital route uh, right. adding nine to any any digital route basically resets it to the same thing so it, it's kind of a, an incredibly powerful bracelet um to have control of um and and it's important that it's lotus as well not just because it helps him get through the nine door but um, the reason she steps forward and is captured is because she realizes that he is the one who kidnapped her, her twin children. And so she steps forward and, and I can't remember if she slaps or punches him, but she basically attacks him and he is then able to get the upper hand on her um, and, and pull the gun on her. Um, so that's kind of when we find out a bit more information about, uh, or, or for sure, a, a bit more information about her. They, they nip off through the ninth door and the remaining group work out that 
Junpei and Seven, along with uh, an extra bracelet they've got, uh, take off after him, um, find Snake in the coffin, and then basically carry on through the second number nine door after Lotus, who is still held captive by Ace. That's when we find out, because obviously um, the, the whole point is that Junpei and Seven can go through the number nine door, um, but Snake in theory couldn't, except we find out that he has a prosthetic arm and therefore he kind of kept that to himself because he can freely go through any door he likes with other people, which is, again, at, at this point you're thinking, well, someone deliberately knocked him out and put his clothes on someone else to get them killed, not him, so they protected mm-hmm. him then. And someone obviously strapped Zero, strapped that bracelet onto his prosthetic arm, knowing fine well he could remove that at any time. So yeah, it seems like Snake's kind of been set up as this wild card, which again feeds into why he might be a bit more confident about the situation because uh, yeah. he was given extra information and has worked out that he's kind of a bit more empowered in this than than other people are. So, and he's played the nunnery game before, so yeah, so he kind of knows what's going down. Naturally, we chase Ace and Lotus into uh, what appears to be a furnace and one final nine door that is uh, presumably the the big one that allows us to escape. Ace reveals that he killed Clover, and this sends Snake into a rage. Who, uh, you know, he, he keeps he attacks Ace pretty ferociously, even after being shot. We we did learn a lot from the safe ending, and we can use that information in the escape ending somehow. And uh, even the fact that we are using this information that we had received in previous playthroughs reinforces uh, some of the ending elements of the plot that we'll uh, we'll get into when we talk about the escape ending. Let's go ahead and move over there. This ending proceeds as normal. Uh, we find ourselves in the chapel in front of the two number nine doors. Santa, just kind of out of nowhere, goes a little bit crazy. As we're trying to work out how to get everybody through these doors, we can't find a number, a numerical combination that can lead to two groups leaving... Um, uh, that add up to a digital root of nine. And so Lotus volunteers to stay behind because she's kind of the odd man out in this. And if she stays behind, then we can have two groups that add up to nine and everybody else can escape. People aren't really cool with this because, you know, they've grown quite attached and they want to make sure that everybody can make it out. Taking particular umbrage is Santa, who uh, instead of insisting that she comes along, insists that three people be left behind instead, takes out the revolver that Ace had in the other ending, and takes June hostage. Clover tries to appeal to him. He had given some sort of indication earlier in the game that Clover was able to pick up on that he had also been a participant in the earlier nonary game. And so Clover tries to appeal to this, but, you know, Santa's having none of that. He he gets whoever he needs to pass through the door and basically takes off, leaving three people behind. That is Clover, Seven, and Junpei that get left behind. They They can't go through the door, but they are in the room with the coffin. They haven't found the combination, that left-right-left combination in the safe on this ending, but... <clears throat> Junpei has kind of like a premonition or some sort of like a hazy distant memory of how to trigger this combination from happening. We learn from it was him remembering an alternate 
timeline or him having that information kind of psychically beamed into his head, which we'll discuss more later. He is able to recreate that series of numbers and unlock the safe, to, or sorry, the coffin to find Snake inside as we knew he was. And together they are all able to pass through the second number nine door and keep pursuing Santa, who now we have zero trust for, and uh, all the rest as they're moving towards the final set of, uh, of doors. Uh, we find ourselves in a library and a storage room, a couple of extra puzzles, which at this point in the game, I was about ready for the puzzles to be done. I enjoyed the puzzles, <laughs> but um, you know, I was so heavily wrapped up in this pursuit. Especially this... by the sixth ending, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, they are interesting puzzles, and uh, we learn a lot in the library just by poking around in the extra extra books that aren't necessary for solving the puzzles. And we learn everything that we haven't learned already about the Nonary Project and the previous Nonary game. And uh, finally catch up to Santa, June, Ace, and Lotus as they are about to escape. They are in the, um, in the furnace that had previously been occupied by Ace and Lotus in the previous ending, also trying to escape. We learn that Santa, even though he's acting very suspiciously, is not zero. In fact, June is zero. In the previous Nonary game, and this is where it gets complicated, (laughs) June had died. And what we are experiencing as June is like one possible future in which June had managed to save herself in the past by psychically projecting herself into the future and assisting us as we ran through a replication of the same puzzles that she went through. We find out that as a child, nine years ago, she was basically stumped by the final puzzle that would have allowed her to exit the game. And she basically set up the second nonary game as a way of hopefully getting somebody smarter to do the second puzzle for her, basically a murderous version of Game Facts. And so we're faced with this, this final puzzle that that child June was not able to solve. If we solve it, then we can psychically send that information back to her and she could save herself, which means that she would exist in this timeline. If we don't solve it, then she would not have that information and she would cease to exist in this timeline. And so basically uh, throughout the game, June has strange like fevers that she'll suddenly receive and um, and she'll even like mysteriously disappear at a couple points. And that is any time at which the course of events deviates from the path that would lead to us sending the information back in time to her, uh, she'll become feverish. That it's kind of like Marty McFly ceasing to exist when his parents don't get together and back to the future. Uh, kind of the same sort of situation that we are doing this to, I don't want to say retroactively, I guess this would be proactively save June in the past. It, it gets yeah. very, very confusing. The, um, the kind of the long and the short of the other stuff we find out is that um, June was, was let, or Akani was left behind in the incinerator um, whilst. Unfortunately, um, Seven 
managed to save everyone else but not June. Um, she got st- trapped in there uh, and couldn't solve the puzzle. Um, the other important information we find out um, at this point, I think I'm right, Ryan, is that um, Santa is June's uh, brother. They were the siblings that were in the Nonary game, uh, but unfortunately they ended up on the both on the ship, which meant that Santa wasn't in the warehouse able to transmit the solution to June, which is kind of potentially why she got left behind. Um, and so what they decided to do between them um, is to set up this um, replication uh, and to use this time someone who has potentially an even closer bond with June than Santa does to send that back because now it's not just being sent across distance, it's being sent across time as well. So they need a really close bond. So the implication is that um, the relationship that June and Junpei may go on to have is a stronger relationship than even a brother-sister relationship is, um, which is kind of a a nice touch. Therefore, also, I suppose the reason that Santa took June captive and ran away with her was to put Junpei in the situation where he was being exposed to even more emotion uh, as a result of fear and and danger to try Mm. and amplify that. So Santa behaved in that completely erratic way in in order to try and heighten the situation to try and force this um this loop to close and the morphic resonance to kick in um as they hoped it would the way that the ending plays out is particularly interesting in that Mm. uh we learn that june in the past nine years ago is kind of peering into the future and seeing all possible iterations of how things could play out which explains the multiple playthroughs and why we can have information that June is actually the one that's collecting this information as she's watching all these things happen simultaneously. And she's the one that sends us the message of, uh, you know, here's the code to unlock snake in the coffin. And and here's why you might want to go through door three, et cetera. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. So that kind of explains that. And we learn actually that, uh, Hey, you know, we are playing as Junpei throughout the game, but the bottom screen on the DS is throughout the entire game has been June's thoughts on what's happening as she watches mm. us in the game. We always kind of assumed that those were Junpei's thoughts, but it's actually like June inhabiting Junpei's mind that has a particular payoff in uh, probably the most powerful scene in the game in which we are standing in front of this this console, this final puzzle in the middle of the room, kind of in the same position that uh, that June had been in nine years prior. And we're finally fully connected with June. We're both sending information back and forth. We both understand exactly what's happening now. And yeah. there are shots of them both standing in the same position and having their faces reflecting back in the monitor of this computer console that's uh, come up out of the floor of the incinerator that presents the final puzzle. The final puzzle, yeah. And uh, to solve this puzzle, we actually have to turn the the DS upside down so that the touchscreen is on top and the display screen is on the bottom, which kind of represents June having always been on the touchscreen, on the, I guess, if we were to use the morphic field language, the writing screen or the transmitting screen and yeah. Junpei having always been on the display screen, or to use the morphic language, the receiving screen or the reading screen. 
now the roles are switched. Now uh, Junpei is the one who is responsible for sending the information back in time. So he's the one who's going to be doing the writing and June is the one who's going to be doing the reading, so to speak. And so, yeah, we have to turn the DS upside down, which is brilliant, and solve basically a a Sudoku puzzle. Sudoku to the (laughs) death, uh, which is uh, a little anticlimactic. But, you know, by this point, we have proven our puzzle-solving prowess, and so we we don't have anything else to... uh, too impressive on the game and so maybe they just wanted to give us a nice little gimme which is uh i understand like for somebody who's never seen a sudoku before then they uh it's understandable that little nine-year-old june couldn't figure out how the rules worked under those circumstances but you know we the player don't have that much trouble with it super interesting how uh they use the physical hardware of the ds to impart this complete reversal this this twist that um we'd never seen coming there's there's a few games i'm not going to mention them don't worry carl um there's a few <laughs> games that have done this with kind of playing about with control schemes or some something physical in in the player's world to try and uh, make you understand uh, a, a story beat or a, a change in perception of something that's happened in the game uh, and this is a really nice one it also um it's kind of a combination of all the morphic resonance stuff and it, it kind of helps you understand why the multiple playthroughs are part of that whole theory and um, why you've had information that you shouldn't have had and why other people at different times have maybe acted in different ways um, because it's all different possible futures depending upon Junpei's actions because he's kind of the um, he is kind of the wild card amongst this group. He's there for a very good reason, but all the other people are simply there to facilitate him solving this final puzzle in such a way that he can transmit the solution back. So, yeah, it's kind of this this um, this nice uh, situation where you realise that w- without feeling like you're the hero who saves the world, you are playing the character who is most important um, and sort of gone through and solved all the puzzles, etc. It, it's kind of a nice resolution to that, to, to having gone through and and uh, met the challenges that were laid out for you. So, uh, Carl, how you doing? Having not played through this this ending, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you're going to think of all of this. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's sort of half surprising, half not surprising, because... As I said, I thought Dune was something deeper in the story and the morphic resonance was all the way through it from a story that Dune tells you about uh, a book on the sinking of the Titanic being ghostwritten 20 years earlier and you start thinking that's going to play some part or that's got to have some relevance to what's going on. So You were looking at all the right people, so all the other stuff is stuff that no one would really get. There's not enough clues to know that Okay, you might have picked up by, say, the second or third ending that there'd been a previous nonary game, etc. But to the extent that that this was a recreation of that one deliberately by someone who was in that game and all the effectively time travel aspects, there's there's not enough clues there for that to to pick this ending out, I don't think. It felt, as I say, like a a fitting ending, but it was a big surprise when, when I got to it. All the details now all came together. She is acting incredibly selfishly and putting people's lives in danger, but it's also something that she had seen in its entirety and every iteration of previously. And so she kind of knows that nobody's in real danger. So you can kind of argue whether, 
you know, she is a great villain or a great hero or just an unfortunate victim. So she's the hero and the zero at the same time. Is that what you're trying to say, Ryan? <laughs> the last very weird part mm-hmm. about the true ending is that, um, I, can't, I don't know if you'll have seen this, Carl, but there are stories of an Egyptian priestess called Alice who is frozen for multiple centuries in Ice Nine and um, and who is then potentially awakened or to be awakened at yes. some point in the future. This, this, this was referenced in my playthrough. Yeah. Santa and June have, have gone off ahead and you all pack into a car to try and catch up with them. Um, and... On the side of the road is a, a hitchhiker who Junpei, you know, pulls over and, and offers a lift to. And it turns out that this hitchhiker certainly looks exactly like the picture of Alice that you've seen previously. It's just such a bizarre ending from, you know, as much as you can say everything else fits together, that's that one's just a bit sort of, why is this in here? It's just it's bizarre. It's non sequitur, and I think it's meant just as a joke. Yeah. Uh, as, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there'd be no reason for Alice to be in the building. And we do find out at the very end that we are actually not on a ship. We're in that separate building in Nevada that we had mentioned building previously. Q, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's no reason for Alice or All Ice to be on the ship, but... It's kind of an interesting transition into one of the things I wanted to briefly mention was all of the pseudoscience and legends that had yeah. been mentioned throughout the game in various puzzle rooms. And I think even some of the story sections, there are little cutaways in which we'll talk to a character who stumbles upon something in the environment that reminds them of a story they read one time or of some scientific study. And we've already mentioned a couple, but uh, just wanted to kind of go through some of the interesting ones. Ice Nine, which is a water that freezes at 96 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius. And so basically it's always ice. And there's a lot of discussion of the Titanic because for a long time we believe that we are either on the Titanic having gone back in time or we're on the Titanic having been dredged up from the bottom of the ocean and restored or we're on one of the sister ships of the Titanic and uh, that Alice rumor, the Egyptian mummy, comes from a, a real legend. Uh, there's some truth, a lot of fiction involved. That one of the theories is that the Titanic sunk because of the curse of an Egyptian mummy, the priestess Amon Ra, which is a real legend that you can look up. The mummy was supposedly cursed. And as it was excavated from Luxor, Egypt, and taken back to England by four English adventurers who all had. Uh, terrible, unfortunate things happened to them. Basically, everybody who handled the mummy had uh, something terrible happen in their vicinity until it was bought by a journalist, uh, William Stead, who transported it back, uh, transported it to America on the Titanic, causing the ship to sink. In actuality, this is just a ghost story that was created by William Stead, which he told on the Titanic, and that's how it became. Uh, kind of associated with the sinking of the Titanic. That is something that all these passengers had, uh, had uh, the survivors had mentioned. But there actually is an unlucky mummy that all of this is based on. You can see the unlucky mummy for yourself next time you're at the British Museum in London. It's in the Egypt room. So that is the mummy that supposedly sunk the Titanic, according to some estimations. But uh, yeah, in actuality, has never left the British Museum after having been housed there. This sort of thing, um, the sort of pseudoscience, pseudo history, and and mixing of sort of legend and myth 
um, with and, and other non-fictions with or other fictions with non-fictions um, is kind of what I meant with the Dan Brown aspect. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's one of those. Sometimes you watch like a TV episode or a film, and and like something like Twenty One Grams, where it's all kind of based around this completely ridiculous notion that the um, the soul weighs twenty one grams, and it kind of sometimes it feels like that was the central idea. Someone heard this kind of nice fairy tale and built an entire story around. Um, and and Dan Brown has this way of integrating multiple different legends and myths and fiction and non-fiction stories to try and make a coherent whole that seems reasonable and gets you to doubt what's real and, and not to a certain extent and get you to believe that some fiction is actually true. Um, and that's very much the the sense I got with the story as it all kind of came together with all of this, where there's kind of just enough of rumor or truth to kind of make you believe all the rest of the stuff that's that's put on around it. Yeah, but I, I found all of these, even though you know, true or not, like I'm not all that interested. Yeah, yeah, no, no, um, in whether they're true or not, but uh, they're just fascinating stories mm. and legends, yeah. and you know, whether or not they've been debunked now, it's like. There's, uh, you know, their ghost stories or the legends of yeah. uh, early legends of Santa Claus or <laughs> ideas of uh, kind of philosophical ideas of whether or not our brains are really where, uh, you know, thought takes place. Um, yeah, so much interesting stuff that it really feels like he wrote the story around just interesting tidbits that he had come across over time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's the way they're all woven together into this sort of quilt of a story mm, that really yeah. does feel like it's got, you know, plenty of weight behind it, even though, you know, break it down, look at it. And some of it, as we say, seems kind of a bit off the wall, a bit out of nowhere, but actually it all has has the feel, has the ring of, of some kind of truth to it, which is really interesting. Anyways, the, the soundtrack to this game was uh, done by Shinji Hosoe, who had done uh, several Tekken soundtracks in the past, had done Xenosaga Episode 2, a Street Fighter EX series, and the Custom Robo series, and so he has some history behind him. Uh, the mm. soundtrack, to me, didn't really stand out all that much. It just seemed to kind of accentuate some of the uh, tensions and stuff that were happening throughout, mm. so I found it a little unremarkable, yeah, but it did sure. a good enough job of underscoring See, everything. See, I did have a track that stood out, and it was the track that played during mm. the laboratory uh, puzzle, and it was okay. because it was so distracting and so unsuitable <laughs> for what was happening. Uh, it stood out a mile. I, if I if there was any one area I would criticise this game, it was its soundtrack. Um, that said, it's so story based and it's so full of reading and and pseudoscience and whatnot that the music is really relatively unimportant. Um, so it, yeah. it, it, it yeah. didn't overly impact my enjoyment of it. But in terms of the soundtrack, uh, didn't completely unremarkable several tracks i didn't like although there's one track that plays through the majority of the game and i swear that's just the midgar music from final fantasy 7 <laughs> um there's there's a couple of the pieces i got uh, a bit of a cuz kind of ambient synthesized electronic music in places um and i got a bit of a feel of uh, amon tobin's score for chaos theory but the tracks in this are way mm. more abstract. They don't hold together as songs or, you know, um, yeah. overall them- themes and tunes in the way that you would hope. So Nine Hours got a sequel on the PlayStation Vita and on the 3DS. 
called Zero Escape Virtue's Last Reward, which might just be the coolest name for a video game that I've heard outside of the Sin and Punishment series. But um, yeah, it's very similar. It's a little bit friendlier, uh, not as gruesome, I would say. There's not as much like blood and guts and stuff like that. Um, But it's equally as intriguing and uh, I'd recommend people who enjoyed this one go hunt down a copy of Virtue's Last Reward. If you have a Vita and you've been a PlayStation Plus member, it's been a PlayStation Plus game in the past, yes. and so you might have it in your yeah. library somewhere. Play yourself in Virtue's Last Reward. I would highly recommend that one. Um, and I would similarly highly not recommend playing that without playing uh, Nine Hours because you know most of the game stands alone and you'd be able to enjoy it. But once you get to the endings, the true endings, the Virtue's Last Reward... Uh, you're going to run into some trouble (laughs) understanding (laughs) everything because it references this game very heavily. Zero Escape 3 has just been announced like uh, literally yesterday, actually, from recording this. So yeah, it's uh, coming to 3DS and Vita in summer of 2016. So I will be anxiously awaiting that one, although I'll probably go back to play Virtue's Last Reward before hopping into that one. I I have beaten Virtue's Last Reward entirely before, but I definitely want a refresher before jumping back into the series. And uh, maybe someday we can do a cane and rinse on that one too. There's some very interesting stuff to discuss there. Almost certainly. Although I believe yeah. there are about 24 different endings for that, aren't there? Uh, Virtue's Last Reward does a nice job of giving you a flow sheet of all of the possible uh, okay. branches. And so it's very kind of graphical right on screen. And you can hop to any point in the game previously Uh, without having to start the game all over and just try to remember which choices lead you down which directions. Yeah, it handles things a little bit different, and we can discuss on that episode someday down the line (laughs) whether that was a good decision or a bad decision. But yeah, if you've uh, come this far and you haven't played Virtue's Last Reward, I would recommend doing so because it is excellent. Anyways, let's hop on over to our community. Uh, We have people from com slash forum, or emailing us at podcast at canonrinse.com with their opinions on 999 and whether it holds up, what they think of it, uh, their general experiences of it. And so we'll go ahead and get right into that. Pope Ramon says, Despite hearing some really interesting things about the series, particularly from Patrick Klepek on Giant Bomb, due to never having been properly released in Europe, I had never gotten around to playing 999, and I didn't want to jump on Virtue's Last Reward. Having played to get all endings over the course of two weeks, I am extremely happy that I finally did. 999 is far from perfect. In places, the puzzles are obtrusive, and having to repeat the earlier ones in later playthroughs is frustrating to say the least. Yet the way the story slowly peels back with each subsequent playthrough, while opening up new mysteries kept me coming back until I had reached the true ending... It must be a coincidence with the Morphic Fields that as by the time the podcast goes out, there will apparently be an announcement on the third game that I intend to follow very closely. And that is true. Carl, would you like to read Todinho's? Yep, sure. Todinho said, 999 is one of those games that I've always heard about, but the few people had actually played. After hearing a lot of good things about it from a friend of mine, I was curious to try it out. Unfortunately, I didn't have a Nintendo DS, so I had to resort to an emulator. Luckily, I managed to go in blind to the point that I didn't even know that the game was a visual novel. All that I knew from my friend was that it was a puzzle game and the story was as if Saw met Lost. That was enough to make me want to play it. What I didn't expect to find was some of the best science fiction in video games. 
At the start, I was rolling my eyes at how anime the cast seemed, but by the end, I was really invested in the story of a belly-dancing computer scientist and was completely intrigued by morphogenic field theory and Ice-9. Very good. Thank you very much. James, would you like to read the next one? Hayes Red Mist says... I'm not a huge fan of having to replay large swathes of games to see all the content, and that's one of the reasons I haven't seen all 999 has to offer. But the core storyline and ending are truly worth seeing. I think this is superior to the sequel, Virtue's Last Reward, and I would strongly recommend anyone who hasn't played it to do so before reading up on the plot. Mike Letty 83 says, I'm not entirely sure of where I became aware of 999. My first impressions were that this was a static-looking, relatively bare-bones, possibly amateur development in the mold of Japanese visual novel, with an opening series of music and sound effects that almost immediately put me off the game. I had delved deep into the world of piracy on the DS, and a few releases that had popped up on the scene at the time. 999's time had come and gone in the space of 10 minutes. A year passed, and I had a drought in games to play. 999 was still on my memory card. I'd seen the reviews, I'd seen the screenshots showing off a little more of what was still to come. The early gripes with the visual style I started to appreciate, a soundtrack that worked its way to the earworm status, and a story that kept me completely invested. 999 isn't the game I came for, but it was the game that I really should have been looking for. This game beat the odds and made me love it. It changed my mind and set me to importing the game, picking up the iOS release and picking up the masterful and again initially alienating sequel at launch. Not bad for a game that could have been so easily thrown away. Stella emailed in at podcast.kinorince.com and said, I discovered 999 quite late, in a lull after finishing Shen Megami Tensei 4. Going from the lush and beautiful environments, deep combat systems and intricate plot of 4 to the static backdrops and grainy sprites of 999 was a shock to the system, but I soon found myself completely drawn in. The two games might not seem as if they have much in common, but it was the branching paths and intricate, increasingly dark storyline of 999 that kept me playing until my eyes wore out late into the nights because I just had to see one more scene. The game touches on something few games do well the selfish nature of humans when faced with impossible situations, the glimmers of hope for humanity amongst ugliness and murder, the impossibility of ever truly knowing another person as well as you think you do. I remember sitting in pitch darkness, playing through the ending sequence where you complete what's basically a Sudoku puzzle to save June in the future because the sun had gone down as I was playing and I hadn't even noticed. I didn't see the twist coming and the idea that this cutesy childhood friend was a merciless killer who'd set up her own nonary game to save herself in the future but still retain some sympathetic characteristics, blew me away. P.S. Also, please answer my eternal question of what means to cane and rinse a game. I'm foreign <laughs> and don't understand it. That's a good question. That is, uh, I, I believe, what is the official cane is to basically just keep caning at a game until you finish yep, it. just to keep going. And then rinsing is uh, kind of like wringing every little possible bit of content out of yep. it. To- so. And uh, James, would you like to read Jonathan Lloyd's, also an email? I decided to include this one because it has a lot of good information on the iOS version as well, something that's been kind of underrepresented in our panel. It's amazing for a game that didn't sell massive amounts by any stretch and wasn't even brought out in Europe that we had so much feedback and two via email. So yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for that. Um, Jonathan Lloyd says, I first played 999 a couple of years ago after seeing it mentioned in various Hidden Gems articles alongside Sing's Hotel Dusk and another Code series, which I'd just finished binging my way through. 
I played through the first time and was somewhat impressed by the game, but not blown away. The puzzles were cl clever, but not impossible. The story was a fairly standard whodunit with the unusual tangents to discuss some fringe science theories, and it had a few good twists and turns. The end is a fantastic punch to the gut. The words, he knew because I knew, still send a shiver down me just thinking about, and inverting the DS for the final puzzle is a stroke of genius. The characters are all fantastically subversive as well. No one is ever quite who they seem. Recently I played through the iOS version of the game, which does not include any of the puzzle sections. It's surprising just how much the very stand, very much standard room escape sections add to the game, both in terms of fun dialogue, but also in terms of adding breathing space within the story and providing you with a sense of achievement for helping Junpei make it through the rooms. That they've replaced them with the words they solved the puzzles and then moved on was an awful decision and detracts from the game further, particularly when you get to the final puzzle making the entire experience rather anticlimactic. It does on the plus side feature a flowchart allowing easy navigation between sections, a feature sadly missing from the DS version meaning that you have to sit through dialogue repeatedly to see various endings. 999 is a game that is definitely worth playing if you can find a copy and one that I pressure my friends into playing whenever possible. If you absolutely cannot find the DS version as it was never released in the EU then the iOS version is still a good story with some good twists but does not have nearly the impact the DS version does. And had I played that version first, I would almost certainly not be singing its praises so highly. Thank you very much for those. Yeah, it was wonderful. And now let's go on to some shorter three-word reviews. Child of Shade says, Intense atmospheric journey. Tadinio said, Crazy boat fun times. <laughs> Tatsun says, Visual novel excellence. Pie Trick says, Creepy little clover. Brad Galloway said, too much bullshit. There's a fair opinion. I mean, there are mixed opinions about this game. Uh, we are probably all fairly positive, but we did want to give some some speaking room to the fact that there are some people who very much did not enjoy it. Uh, there's a lot of people who say that it's poorly written, or at least the you know whether or not the story itself is well conceptualized. The incidental dialogue tends to lean a bit heavy on cliches. I don't really feel that way myself, but that's uh, something that. A lot of people point to, and then as Brad mentioned, there's a there can be a lot of things that can be seen as padding. Um, maybe if they're not yeah. into the pseudoscience type stuff, or maybe if they're not as interested in the escape the room puzzles, it can drag out a little bit longer than it probably has to. Yeah, I know um, Brad and uh, other guests on previous uh, issues of Kane Rinse, Sinan Kuba, have talked about on the Game Critics podcast in the past. Uh, about this game and, and said that compared to something like Danganronpa, um, that they don't feel that the the writing um, and the the kind of editing and pairing down of the the dialogue to the kind of um, important parts is all that well done here. Specifically, wanted to to reach out to Brad for that three word review because um, yeah, it's uh, it's not that he's not apt to like this sort of game he's a, a big fan as i say of the danganronpa games so um so yeah it's uh, uh, as we always say other opinions definitely available on this one carl would you like to talk about whether or not you'd recommend this to people and uh, your takeaway thoughts at the very end of everything if you're this far through it and you've never played it then no i don't recommend it <laughs> because there's nothing in there to surprise you or overwhelm you um and if you are this far and you have played it then what's the point in recommending it so uh it, it's really strange i just you know for me i thoroughly enjoyed the experience uh of going through i intend to go back get the rest of the endings um 
fill in the little bits of information that we haven't been able to cover. I mean, this has been a long recording and uh, it's been impossible to mention everything from every ending. Uh, for me, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of playing it. It's not whether it comes to a recommendation or not for me, because at this point in the podcast and given the kind of game it is, I don't think that that's really plausible. Uh, I'd just say that I really, really like this game. Yeah, I have very strong feelings for this game as well. Uh, it impressed me the first time that I went through all six endings, and it impressed me the second time just as much. I've been excessively fascinated by the pseudoscience and the legends that they they bring up, and you know any game that can get me searching around the internet and and snoping things and um, you know doing some like real digging into mysteries of my own world like i'm just very very interested in that kind of thing and the fact that it was able to present it in what was uh, a really intriguing mystery in which you know it was one of those situations like uh, like deadly premonition where you know you end up suspecting just about every other character that you meet of being this awful killer at some point during your experience the acrobatics that the the writer had to do to plan out all of these numerical values and the uh, multiple branches of the story and ultimately um, kind of peaking in a very complicated but a very kind of simplistic at the same time and kind of like very human ending. It wrapped up really well. I, I got to play the DS version. I haven't played the iOS version, so I don't know how much is lost in translation having uh, the removed the puzzles. But... Um, yeah, I'd say if you can't get a hold of the DS version, definitely play the iOS version. If you're listening uh, right now, you probably already have. But if you haven't and you disregarded our warnings anyways, I say it's it's probably still worth experiencing. There's still a lot there. Marvelous and very curious game. And it kind of makes me wonder, is the is this the standard of quality among Japanese visual novels? Because if so... I've been sorely missing out for a long time. I, I've enjo enjoyed both this and Danganronpa so much that um, I'd be very happy to dive into that genre and see if there are other similar gems that I might have glazed over in the past. Anyways, what about you, James? So I think part of the reason you mentioned before, Ryan, that um, Junpei comes off as a, a bit, bit dull at points in terms of... Uh, you know, he, he seems a bit kind of slow and not able to, to think particularly well. I think part of the reason for that is that actually early on, I've got to say, I, I do agree with Brad a bit. There are times where he's restating multiple times the same piece of information. And it seems like there is a lot of excess dialogue that's just restating the same stuff over and over again. Um, whether it be from the same character or from multiple characters. And it does kind of, at certain points, over-explain what's going on. It didn't get to me at the time. I, I raced through this game uh, in, in pretty short order. Um, and, and it didn't bother me at, at the time. But looking back on on it now, going back to it a bit and watching a, bit, a few videos of the endings, um, I can certainly see that it's a problem. It could have been tightened up and sort of pared down in terms of the script. But... What it does do is it brings together the experience of playing the game, the information it seeds in the puzzles and in the the uh, the dialogue sections, and um, also the multiple playthroughs. I, I really like a game where a new game plus isn't just a score attack or a slightly harder version. It actually does something with the story to change that, to change your perspective of it. Um, Near is one of my favourite games for that reason. See 
that issue of Caden Rins for any more details. I'm not going to spoil anything on that here. But um, the fact that this story, um, on first blush, seems to be a little bit bloated with extraneous information and you get to an ending that can seem just like to hit you out of nowhere like an axe to the back of the head, actually like an axe to the back of the head, seems superfluous and it seems odd and perhaps off-kilter and the fact you've got these really heavy cliched characters but what it does over multiple playthroughs by seeding all these little bits of information um, it allows it to subvert these characters and to build a story that by the end it kind of has just stunned me in in many ways uh, it may not be the best version of a, of a visual novel but it's the one that I'm going to point to as that's the one that showed me what can be done just by not necessarily playing with gameplay so much as just by carefully planning out a story for the player to come to and discover and try and piece together in this kind of whodunit way where uh, by the, the safe ending when Junpei's like Poirot where he's pulling all this information out to, to uh, basically hang drawn quarter ace um, and, and get him to admit who he is and what he did. I think that's what sticks with me. It's the way that that all comes together. And as Junpei's realising it, you're realising it. Um, and, and that works really well. There's just a really nice melding of gameplay and the way the story all kind of comes together uh, that, that I haven't seen done in, in many games at all. And I, I've got a lot of love for this game for that reason. All right. Well, we managed to get through this one without any of us exploding or going through the wrong door. So I count that as a victory. It just leaves it to me, Ryan, to thank Carl and James. And next time, we'd be very happy if you joined us in issue 185. Gather round with your friends and family of upsetting monkey people for Halo 3. See you next time. Mm-hmm.